Have you or anyone you know ever been emotionally destroyed by a book? Have you ever got the feels for a fictional character? Have you ever been hung over by an all-night book binge? Then pull up a seat, pour yourself a glass, and hang on to your Kindle. This is Drinking Ink. Hey friends, Mia here. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to drop in with a note on our content. While books are for everyone, this podcast was created for adult audiences only. Listener and reader discretion is advised as we sometimes dive into difficult and triggering content such as graphic depictions of violence, frank portrayal of sexuality, discussion of mental illness, and existential struggle. It might be a lot to take in, so if you need a breather, take a break or come back later. We'll be here for you. And we're back. We are back. That is that is true. With another episode of Drinking Ink. Yes, we are. We and <laughs> and this episode is kind of near and dear to my heart because it's one I've wanted to do for a while. Um, but finding a way to talk about it and making sure that we're being respectful has been something that I've had to really think about in terms of the way I wanted to present this episode. Uh, for our listeners, today we're going to be talking about Indigenous voices, and we can't talk about Indigenous authors without discussing some of the history that goes behind why these authors are often marginalized and their work is not typically um, public-facing and or given as much support by the publishing industry. That can include talking about uh, triggering topics like generational trauma, abuse, residential schools and more and so I just would like to let you guys know that if this is an episode that is too difficult for you to listen to you are more than welcome to come back and join us next week um, but uh, we really do want to give uh, Indigenous authors the platform and share some of our favorite Indigenous books books that are written by Indigenous authors around the world and kind of shed some light on what uh, these people have had to face when entering publishing spaces and society as a whole. So we hope you guys appreciate this episode. I have been looking forward to it for a really long time. And uh, yeah, let's just get going. So how many books by Indigenous authors have we read? Let's just get it out there. Not as many, but I have read a few and I've very much enjoyed them, um, but I would like to to read more than I have, because I think that they're important to uh, to know about. Becca, how about you? I don't know, cause I don't I don't pay attention to authors. <laughs> I could have read many and never have known. So. Yeah, I. I think that that's similar for me. I really didn't realize how undiverse my writing was or my writing, my reading was until about a year and a half ago when I started to really get back into reading and I was introduced to book talk and the conversation around diverse authors, BIPOC authors and marginalized communities was really kind of front and center uh, in the discourse a lot in 2021. And so I've been making an active effort to purchase books from Indigenous authors, from Black authors, from LGBTQ authors, from Latina authors, to really um, 
put a focus on my reading and in, in trying to be more diverse in my reading. Now, have I gotten to all of the books that I want to read? Absolutely not. But the issue surrounding Indigenous people has some, is something that I really started to take notice of um, a few years ago while my husband and I were living in Saskatchewan. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Canadian uh, geography, Saskatchewan has a very high population of Indigenous folks. And it was while I was living there that I really started to see the disparity between how Canada treats other marginalized communities and how they tend to treat Indigenous people. And I started to really do some learning and I learned a lot of really sad, scary things. And that's kind of what's driven me to, I guess, just be more aware and pay more attention to my world and around me, what's happening, what I'm reading, what I'm ingesting and what I'm, what I'm digesting, I guess, from a global stage. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to support people who have not been publicized in the same way that traditional authors have been. Um, but I think it's also like important to, to know about what has gone on in your country. Like, even if, if you're not from, you know, Canada or America, I think it's important to know about what has taken place, um, because it drastically affected the entire like continent like it had a big impact on a lot of people um that if you're not from that community you're never going to understand you're never going to know exactly how that uh, experience felt but I think it's important to educate yourself about those things because um it really puts you you're able to put things into perspective more and you're able to understand wow like I actually have a lot of privilege um that I didn't realize I had before knowing about this because yeah like it's not like they can even help where they come from like you can't help where you're born or um but if you're able to educate yourself and also like support people support those kind of authors um because I realized like as I looked through this I'm like there's a lot of books I've actually would love to read that are by indigenous authors that I just haven't gotten that chance to read them um but I think it's really important to understand a different perspective because I think it helps you to go about the world in a different sense Absolutely. You know, I, I find it really interesting how the book community kind of treats marginalized voices. You know, on one hand, there is a very large percentage that tend to uplift and put diverse authors, authors at the forefront of their content. And then there are other authors or not other authors, but other readers who tend to downplay the diversity in their reading and or choose to ignore inspiration or problematic content because, well, I liked it and that's all that matters. And I think, I think there's a problem with that personally. Like I take a pretty big issue with that because when you're looking at a story and there's problematic content, harmful representation, or, you know, I mean, the one book that comes to mind that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, is literally theft of someone else's trauma. That's not okay, <laughs> you know? And I think as readers, we need to be 
more conscious of the media that we're consuming and understanding where these stories are coming from, you know, a heartfelt story about a house full of orphans on the surface sounds like it would be a wonderful story, a wonderful story about found family and, and finding your identity and your true self. But when you look deeper at where the inspiration for that story came from, you see the, the, the gentrification and the whitewashing of indigenous trauma. And I'm sure you're all getting to what understanding what I'm getting at here. And I mean, I'm bringing up house of on the cerulean sea by TJ Klune. Um, because that book to me, I find is super problematic. And there are so many people that really enjoy his work and they just refuse to acknowledge that the core tenant, like the core principle that this book was, was inspired by in Klune's own words was the abduction of digi- of indigenous children from their homes in Canada by the RCMP to be placed in residential schools. And these residential schools were horrible places. Children were abused. They were starved. They were denied affection. They were murdered. Uh, massive graves have been found all across Canada in the last three years where the sites of these residential schools used to be. And to say that, well, it's just a cozy fantasy story about found family, in my opinion, is really selling a mistruth. I don't know about you guys. What do you think? Well, as someone who is technically considered part of a like minority, like because I I've grown up with a disability, um, and so the way I see this, if someone was trying to explain, like, come up with a story about my disability that didn't have one. Um, that didn't understand my disability and then tried to like say oh like they they used it in a story and then they tried to say like oh like I mean again like this is probably not as extreme as say like what we're talking about but like to me this is an example it's like no I wouldn't be okay with that if you misrepresented my disability for the sake of your um I guess like your own gratification like you're the one the, the author is the one who's who's profiting off that they're the one who's who's making something off of that. So if someone were to make a profit off of trying to represent my disability, I would probably be annoyed with that. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be happy. Um, so in the same way, it's like, it's not right to be profiting off of someone. Like it was horrific. If you've never learned about residential schools or anything that that's taken place, you will never quite understand just how graphic it got. And again, like as someone who has never experienced that and like is not an Indigenous person, I will never truly understand it to the forefront of how they will understand it. But if you don't even take the chance to learn about it and you're completely ignorant and you're just like, oh, it's a fun story. No, it's not. (laughs) Like, it's not just a, it's not a simple thing. It's a really, like, it is it is sickening and horrifying to learn like some of the things that occurred. Um, like some of those graves were of like small babies. Like that's the kind of graphic nature it can get to. So the fact that you're saying, oh, it's just a story. Well, that someone's life, that's a representation of what someone actually went through. So to try and profit off of that and then downplay it. That just, that pisses me off, honestly. Like, I don't think that's okay. And I think what bothered me the most about House of the Cerulean Sea, like, I haven't read it, so I can't speak to the actual content of the book, but it's the softening of what's happened. You know, the 
in Houses of the Cerulean Sea, the concept is the same. This is a house with magical children who have been uh, placed here because they're not accepted into society. And someone from whatever office of ministry of whatever is sent there to do research or to see what the living conditions of this house is like. And over the course of the novel, from what I understand, this character comes to love the children and care for the children and realize that they're not um, outcasts or they shouldn't be outcast. But TJ Klune is not making any sort of new commentary. He's not putting a new lens to the trauma that Indigenous people have experienced. He's not using the the story of the 60 scoop which isn't even really a story I think anyone should be using but he's not even using the story in a way to add to the conversation you know and I think that's what really bothered me about it is that had the story been done in a way that added to the commentary that said this is what's happened to children across Canada and the United States for many many years and it's wrong and we shouldn't marginalize people uh, and and steal children from their from loving homes, then why do it at all? Like to me, it just doesn't make any sense. What are your thoughts on it, Becca? Have you read House on the Cerulean Sea? No, I haven't. No, I I never really had plans to. I read Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Klune that a lot of people said was really great, and I think like the premise of it and the idea was really great, but it wasn't written the way it sh- I felt it should have been. It was very dragging on so after that i was like yeah i don't i don't think i want to read another clune um and i don't know if any book i'm pretty sure there has to be any books really exist out there that kind of go through and document or have actual interviews with people who might have been there because one of the things too about indigenous schools i don't know about canada but i know as far as here in america they existed pretty much right up until almost I was born. I think they shut down or stopped becoming a thing like a year or two before I was born. So it's really not too far, you know, in the grand scope of history. It's not that long ago. It really is. So there are survivors out there who could tell their story. It's just a matter of, do they want to? Is that something they want to relive? There's a book I read called Ghosts of the Orphanage by Christine Kennelly, Kennelly or whatever. Um, it doesn't focus on indigenous residential schools, but it focuses on survivor stories from orphanages run. The one she predominantly um, focuses on was run by the Catholic Church here in America, but it's gruesome what you'd hear these children went through. And there's a lot of them that's like, well, she'd interview the children of people who went through this school and they're like, well, they never talked about it. Or these were the few stories we got. Or she would interview actual survivors who are still dealing with trauma in their 50s and 60s and and they would tell stories of how like you know there was this one instance where a child was coughing real bad because he had pneumonia and they're like you need to shut up or you're gonna get us all in trouble so another kid just walked over and whacked him in the head with like an iron bar and he's like he stopped coughing well it's because he killed him and y'all didn't know till the next day And then there was one instance where there was this one boy in the orphanage who his favorite pastime was just push people out of a third story window. And all the nuns would be like, oh, it just happens here. We just won't talk about it. It was graphic. And like, we're talking about a religious run orphanage here. So 
you can only imagine what might have come out of an, a residential school documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Like here in Canada, our last residential school closed in 1996. At the time, it wasn't a full-time school. It was a quote-unquote day school. Um, and I actually, I knew someone who was um, attended that school uh, and was one of the last students to attend that school. That person, um, unfortunately, in uh, 2022, they took their own life um, because of the experiences that they had at that school. And you have to understand too, I think people don't understand the the concept of generational trauma. You know, they say, oh, it happened in the past. 1996 was only some 30 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't even 30 years ago. It was 27 years ago. Well, almost. It was almost 30 years ago. But that's like the fact that it was, wasn't even 30 years. Like that's the most astounding part is that like, that's how. So what I'm getting at is that there are children who went to residential schools in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, who then became adults, who then had children who also attended these residential schools and then left school and then had their own families. And so there's this cycle of generational trauma that has been passed down through generations and generations of Indigenous people. And it's it's horrifying. In fact, there's a really great book um, by Richard Wagamese. I'm going to make sure I'm saying that right. His name is, sorry, it's Richard Wagamese, um, and he is from the, well, I'm going to say this wrong, I'm going to try my very best, I apologize if I mispronounce it, is Wabasimung, First Nation in Northwestern Ontario, Canada, and it's called Indian Horse. It was uh, made into a movie, and it is a fictional retelling about the life of a man named Saul Indian Horse, who experienced residential schools, and he is at the time that the novel begins, he is an alcoholic and he is uh, in a treatment center and he is trying to tell his story um, with respect to his life experience and going through the emotions of no one in this room is going to understand what I have been through because I'm the only person in this room who has experienced residential schools. And there's a special kind of trauma that comes with that. Um, I've seen Indian Horse. I haven't read the book. It's on my list to read. But uh, Richard Wagamese is a very prolific Canadian Indigenous author. And if anyone is interested in reading more about Canadian Indigenous history, um, he is a great place to start. He unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but he has been uh, an active author since 1979. He worked as a columnist and a reporter. He worked in radio and television as a broadcaster and producer. Um, and he has published 12 books specifically about Indigenous experiences. And so if you're ever looking to learn about fiction or nonfiction, the lives of Indigenous people, he's a really great place to start. Um if you're wanting to look at it from a more historical aspect. Yeah, it's honestly, it's crazy. The fact that, the fact that this has even occurred in the first place, it just shocks me. The fact that people could be so horrible that they would ever decide that someone is lesser than they are because of some sort of different culture they practice. Like, and that is the, fr that is the biggest thing that frustrates me. And like, if you're not frustrated on their behalf, like what are you doing with your life really because if like as human beings it doesn't like I feel like we need to stop focusing so much on the fact that 
you know, we didn't experience it to the fact that like, this is your fellow human being who's been treated horrifically. And if you can't have the least bit of compassion for what they have gone through, what their family has gone through, because like, like that just, it just like, like, I don't want to speak to your character as a human, but like, I feel like you need to do some reevaluating of your life. If you can at least have a compassion for what they've gone through, the horrific events they've had to deal with in life, because generational trauma I know from my own experience with generational trauma it is probably one of the most like psychologically just like it's like such mind fuckery because even though you didn't experience it yourself you could be the child of someone who's experienced it you see the effects of that in your parent your grandparent whoever it is that you've have in your family that's experiencing it you see the effects of it on them and how they treat their kids and and treat the people around them and view themselves like it is not a fun thing to have to deal with it's not easy to have to work through that and especially when like your entire culture has been stripped away and essentially you're being told that if you practice any bit of your culture that you're going to be punished for something that is natural to you like it's so horrible that people even thought this was acceptable because like the fact that one person deemed themselves better than someone else, like, it just, it, it, it pisses me off. And I'm not even like, I haven't even experienced this or had someone close to me affected. And it still just pisses me off that someone thought that they had the power and they were going to use their power and treat someone else less than them just because they were different. Well, and it's something that's universal, I think, across nations. I mean, if we look at the Sami people in Scandinavia, uh, loss of their land, loss of their culture. Um, in Australia, the Maori people being forced um, to marry and have children with white Australians um, for the sake of, quote unquote, integration. Um you know, indigenous children in Australia and New Zealand being taken from their families and placed with white families in order to whitewash them. I mean, it's it's something that's happened across the board. It's not something that's unique to Canada or uni- unique to the United States. I think anyone um, living anywhere in the world should, should look at what their history says and look at what their who were the first people in their in their lands and who were the ones that settled and who were the ones that that were the stewards of the lands before colonizers took over because I mean, let's be honest, white man colonized about mm, the entire world, you know? I was been there thinking about that. when you're talking about the Maori? Um, and I had a tangent thought. I was like, mm, you know what needs to happen since the, I'm the mirror. I'm the American here and our government's been talking about aliens. Right. Okay. But like, what if the aliens came in and colonized, us like white man colonized everything else it's just like hey you're gonna be one of us now <laughs> uh that would be some universal karma i would want to witness and i'm white and i'd still want to witness it <laughs> oh yeah you know i think it's really funny because we look at what's happening now politically in the states sorry becca with respect to how the Christian Judeo religions and, and, and activists and lobbyists are so anti LGBTQ and, you know, the, the, the principles are the same, you know, back in the 16 and 1700s and 1800s, when they were um, colonizing Canada and the United States, it was, well, the indigenous people taught them how to 
sow the land, how to survive in the intemperate climates that can exist specifically here in Canada. But when the help of Indigenous people was no longer um, profitable to colonizing the, the, the colonizers coming over, well then, oh, well, we need to tame them. We need to, uh, because they're going to take over. We need to, um, you know, teach them how to be more like us. And the concept is still the same when you look at it from the lens of how LGBTQ and 2SL um, individuals are being treated nowadays. It's this, well, they're trying to, um, what is the word they constantly use? Not woke, but uh, brainwash, or they're trying to um, indoctrinate. And that's the word. Thank you. Indoctrinate our children to becoming queer. And so we need to create all of this legislation to restrict care and access to make these people be more normal and more like us. And it's just, it's gross. It's gross on a whole. And, you know, everybody says history repeats itself and no one's paying attention to what's going on right now. I have a friend that gets mad about that with me on a regular basis when she shows me like something going on and blah, blah, blah been like oh this is just like unprecedented and i can't believe we're living through this i'm like this happened like 70 years ago i'm not that concerned about it <laughs> the ironic thing is yeah is that you history is typically something that you're supposed you're supposed to you would hope we would learn from um with the way that our world is um that's not what's happening which is kind of like it's sad but at the same time i'm like y'all are idiots like plain and simple um, so like, does it surprise me? Not a hun not not really, because like lately it seems like less people have common sense than you would expect, or that should, because like common sense you'd think everybody has it, but no, hardly anyone has it anymore. Um, yeah, it's just like you'd think we'd learn, but I guess, I guess we're just very thick-headed people that we can't seem to like get over our differences and just let people live how they want to live. And I like, don't think that's it. I think it has to do with white men in power deciding that money and capitalism and their rights are more important than anyone else's. Yeah. And that's the frustrating part is that there are people who think that like they're more important than everyone else having just like basic human rights. And I'm just like, you're stupid that you think that you're more important. Cause guess what? You're not, you're simply just another human being who needs to get over themselves. I'm just saying white man as like a population is outnumbered by everyone else all we gotta do is get enough people together and put all right, them back we... in their place <laughs> Becca, Becca, right. I, know, I know what you're trying to say but like like we, we can't like let's not cause that much chaos we we really don't want to be responsible for another insurrection i mean no, i can't please. go to jail you think no, this face uh, can't go to jail i'm too I'm pretty, too for, pretty jail. for jail <laughs> I would not survive in jail. Please don't. Please don't do that. I know you love, we love chaos, but like there's a limit sometimes. <laughs> Though I do agree with you. And I think that's why it's important to have these discussions, right? And it's really important, I think, to platform um, content that's not what you would normally consume or that's different from what you're used to consuming, which is why I think it's really great that today we're going to talk about Indigenous authors and books that we want to read, books that are on our TBR and uh, books that we have read that we are, are that have been written by incredible indigenous authors that, you know, 
I think more people should read because it's more than just also learning about indigenous um, history through the lens of an actual indigenous person, you know, culturally indigenous people, they're a lot of their traditions are oral based. They don't have a lot of written uh, or they didn't have a lot of written stories. So a lot of what their culture is based around is the oral storytelling method. Man, that was weird. I'm pretty sure the NSA is listening to us right now because listeners, as I was going through, as I was about to say what I was about to say, our uh, recording system just completely went kaput and closed down <laughs> our conversation. Oh, I was like, to us. excuse me, NSA, I'm going to say what I want to say, which was that, you know, indigenous languages have historically been denied um, access and fiction and writing books and putting out um, publications is a really great way for preserving that language and being able to teach it to younger generations, um, specifically when it comes to children's books and, um, you know, books that are designed for the classroom. And so I just, I think it's really important that we talk about Indigenous authors, which is, I'm going to keep saying it until I'm blue in the face, because I think it's really, really important. So I'm going to start. I have a couple of books on my list that I haven't got to yet that I really do want to get to. One of which has been sitting on my shelf for probably about a year, and it's The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bouley. And uh, it was a nominee for the Best Debut Novel in 2021, and it won Best YA Fiction 2021 on Goodreads. So it's a good we good we amazing. It's, it's amazing. A, it's a Goodreads Choice good Award. Read. It's so a very what, good read. So tell us what's about Mia. If you've read it, tell me what it's about. So it's about um, this. She bases it off of something that like she so she had when she like this is based off her the author when she was younger. There was a an undercover cop that like posed as a high school student for like a very like I think it was a very short period of time but um and so she wrote this book basically as though like imagining as the main character had like met this undercover cop um but at first didn't know he was an undercover cop until like she later finds this out um because like she deals with like there's a situation that she experiences in the book that um she finds out like somehow she's connected to all that's what's going on because there's some problems with um, drugs being um, made within the community and then people are covering them up. Like people are covering up deaths of, of um, young indigenous um, people, like, like youths, like high school age and like beyond um, that are getting involved in, in drugs and, and cr the creation of drugs and, um, and these crimes are being covered up and this undercover cop has come to, kind of like figure out what's going on and kind of infiltrates the situation to see what exactly is happening um and it's set in about like early 2000 so like 2004 2005 is um and it's basically her experience through um dealing with that like the situation and how she's affected because I don't want to give anything away but like stuff happens that connects her like intertwines her into whatever is happening within the book um and it was very like eye-opening because um as someone who would have been I would have been like trying to think I would have been seven in 2005 I would have been like a young child um and to know that like this was hap going on quite close to where I grew up is kind of like it was kind of shocking but the book was amazing like I just was like I didn't want to put it down I'm pretty sure I've read this book in literally two days because I just it's a thick book but I did not want to set this book down because it was just so captivating to see 
like this story that she created based on something that you know was actually happening that's like still occurring um so i highly recommend picking it up you won't want to put it down that's awesome and and angeline Bully actually has another book coming out this year if it's not already out i'm going to double check that and it's called warrior girl unearthed and the focus of the story is around um a young person who learns about the nagpra federal law that allows tribes to request the return of ancestral remains and sacred items. Uh, And because she learns about someone called the warrior girl, who is um, the bones of an indigenous person, indigenous woman that's being kept in a museum. And so I think that that's going to have to go on my TBR right now (laughs) because I really love the, the, uh, the concept of exploring real life stuff through the lens of fiction. And I think that the, this is just going to be really good. And this actually, it is out. It was published on May 2nd. So um, if you are into YA, you are into real-esque life-based um, mystery and suspense and and learning about Indigenous issues, um, Angeline Bully, I think, is a really good uh, place to start. Um, I also learned uh, Angeline Bouli is actually a, a member with the Sault Ste. Marie Chippewa Indian Nation, and she actually acted um, as part of the U.S. federal um, Indigenous, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now, but she was a member and worked very closely with the, the U.S. Federation um, for Indigenous Peoples' Rights. Another book, and this one is actually one that I've included in um I uh, have what essentially is a little library. So as I mentioned before, I work for a nonprofit and part of what I do is encourage early literacy. And so one of the things that I've done is I've incorporated kind of a mini library with um, a school about four hours north of where I live that is a primarily Indigenous community. And I've done my best to really incorporate Indigenous books that represent them and their culture. And one of the books that I included that I've gotten a lot of really great feedback on from the uh, person who runs the program up there is The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimoline. And what I think is really interesting is that it's a little dystopian. It's a little science fiction. It's a little bit fantasy. It is queer, almost like a retelling from based on the synopsis um, of the Indigenous experience of residential schools. And I'm just going to read to you guys the synopsis because I was not familiar with Cherie Dimaline at first. Um, And so when I was looking for books for this mini library project that I was running, uh, I was taking a lot of uh, recommendations from um, Indigenous reading lists and from Indigenous people who are recommending books. And this is one that came up. And so the synopsis is what really grabbed me. And I think if you like dystopian, if you like um, science fiction and you're interested in queer young adult uh, fantasy, this is probably a book that you're really going to enjoy. It was published in 2017 and the synopsis reads as follows. In a futuristic world ravaged by global warming, people have lost the ability to dream and the dreamlessness has spread to mad- uh, has led to widespread madness. The only people still able to dream are North Americans indigenous people. And it is their marrow that holds the cure for the rest of the world. But getting the marrow and dreams means death for the unwilling donors. Driven to flight, a 15-year-old and his companions struggle for survival 
attempt to reunite with loved ones, and take refuge from the recruiters who seek them out to bring them to the marrow-stealing factories. And so what I really liked about that synopsis is that an adult would understand that this is a correlation between residential schools. And as a teenager, it's, you know, we hear about, we learn, here in Canada, we learn about residential schools, but it's a very watered down version that we learn about. We learned that they existed and it was, at least when I was in school, primarily taught that it was a good thing and that the Indigenous people were learning to read and learning to be productive members of society. As an adult, I've learned different. And so I think if you have a young person in your life who is interested in um, Indigenous issues, this is a really great book for them to kind of start to get the understanding of losing autonomy from a cultural perspective. And it just, I've gotten a lot of really great feedback from the students that I know who have read the book that it is, um, they've really enjoyed it. And it's part of a series. So the first book is called The Marrow Thieves. And it is, um, the series itself is called The Marrow Thieves. And it is by, uh, like I said, Cherie Dimaline. And I just, I really wish that you guys, anyone listening would pick it up and take, give it a, give it a read because it, it is so interesting. I have been meaning to get around to it and I have to put more effort in getting through my TBR, um, because this is one that has stuck out to me for quite some time. And I'd really like to, to listen to it if I can get it on audiobook or read it on my Kindle. Um, and the last book that I'm going to recommend is one that I just recently picked up. It's actually, I think it's a fairly new publication. It was published in May and it's called To Shape a Dragon's Breath by Monocle Black Goose. And this is uh, 100% uh, fantasy. It is LGBTQ queer. It is young adult. It is dragons. Um, and it is essentially about uh, an indigenous girl who enters a colonizer run dragon academy. I mean, we can see the parallels. And I really love the way that it's been um, presented. And she finds herself at odds with the approved quote unquote way of doing things. And so what she ends up doing is bonding with a dragon egg and it's hatchling. And her people are so excited because back in the day, dragons used to live among them and they were friends. And um, she's revered, um, revealed to have this very special power, like a person having a unique relationship with a dragon. And unfortunately, the, the conquerors of her land have a different opinion. And so the story is about her kind of going through this experience of having no formal schooling, a non-English or English in the story upbringing, and a different understanding of her own world history and trying to navigate their world. And they just might have to be the ones who do the world changing. And I just, it's absolutely gorgeous. I actually brought my copy so you guys could see it because the cover... Like, look at the cover. What is so great about the cover of this book is it actually takes a lot of inspiration from traditional Indigenous artwork as well. It has a lot of really bold black lines. Yellow, black, red, and white are the only colors used on the book, which if anyone is familiar with Indigenous culture, those are the primary colors in the medicine wheel, which is a very um, important symbol in Indigenous culture. And it is the first book in a series it's called, I'm not, again, I'm probably going to butcher the title, but it is called Nam, Nam Peshwasit, uh, and it's called To Shape a Dragon's Breath. And I, it's been sitting on my desk underneath Chasm um, because it's the next book that I have been planning to pick up. 
Um, and I just haven't gotten around to it. So, so that's another one that I really recommend. I think it has a really high rating on Goodreads. I think it's got about a four point something star read uh, on Goodreads. It's uh, recent. It's a new release. And if I'm not mistaken, the author is Canadian. And I always love sharing Canlit. I'm going to check to make sure. Seekonk Wapanok tribe and is a lineal descendant of Usamaquin Massaswa. And I am not sure where that is, but I will find out before the end of this episode. So I'm going to look that up. Who else wants to share their indigenous wrecks? Um, what I've read this year is If I Go Missing by Brianne Joni. It was actually based on a real life letter that had been sent. And the letter itself, I think, went like viral on the internet. What I read was a graphic novel, like rendering of it but it's essentially you have brianna who is an indigenous uh girl herself or teenager and she notices that when anyone indigenous within the local area kind of goes missing or is murdered the media treats it very differently than if it happened to be someone of you know african-american descent or white descent and so she essentially just writes a letter and says hey if i go missing can you treat me as a human being please like because not only is she an indigenous person but she's also female so it's like she has double strikes against her if something should ever happen to her the media is just going to kind of overlook it and it was actually really interesting it wasn't what i expected it to be it was a lot more powerful than i expected it to be um another one i have is this place 150 years retold by kateri um a dom uh Akuenzi, Akuenzi, I don't want to butcher the name, but it's also a graphic novel, but it's various um, indigenous writers are basically retelling history, like past, present, and uh, future through the indigenous scope. And it focuses on Canadian history and kind of like pre-colonization and how they were treated during colonization and how it is that they're treated today and kind of what it is they want to look for towards the future. That one was really good as well. Um, there's another one that I really liked that uh, was a kid's book, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was one that you had rec recommended to me, Becca, uh, last year. And I want to say it was, oh my gosh, the name has completely gone out of my head. Um, hold on, I'm going to look for it because I know where I know where I can find it. I have a few that I can talk about. Um, ooh, this is interesting. Um, so I wanted to read Broken Blade because I have not read that yet, and it like blew up on TikTok, and it just sounds very interesting. So, if y'all are on TikTok and you know Broken Blade, you'll know what it's about. Um, Scars and Stars. That one as well by Jesse Thistle. It's like a collection of poems and uh, and such. Actually, found it on Indigo. I'm like, this looks really interesting. It's like they have a collection, like a, it's like an Indigo. Yeah, it's it's poems, uh, like a book of poems, um, which looked really interesting. And then another one that I found, actually, again, like I was looking through the Indigo, um, collection of Indigenous authors. Um, it's called Stolen. It's actually about the um Scandinavian um Indigenous people. Um, it's. I think it's it's it says soon to be a major Netflix film. I don't know how well they're gonna do with that one, but um, 
basically it's about a young um sami i think that's how you say it girl and like basically her struggle to defend her family's reindeer herd and their traditional way of life so it sounds very interesting um i also saw the cover and i'm like this looks promising because <laughs> i'm also that one person who will like um look at the cover and be like i want to read that um and then i also saw the shape of the dragon's breath i did also want to to read as well and then the last one that I saw that I'm like, I need to pick this up. It's called Son of a Trickster. And it's basically like, there. I think there's like a series of books, but this is the first one in the series um, by Eden Robinson. Um, and it's about like um, a, a kid who in an unfortunate situation doesn't have really reliable parents. Um, and then like finds out he's the son of a trickster um and like it's like young adult like like there's magical realism like it's it just it looks very interesting so um i do want to get my hands on those if possible i remember it was nibi's water song by sunshine oh my gosh sunshine tescaco i'm sure i'm not saying that right um sunshine tanasco uh, and it was illustrated by chief ladybird uh, and it is about an uh, Anishinaabe child uh, on the search for clean water to drink. That is something that has been consistently a problem in Canada. A lot of our um, Indigenous communities don't have clean drinking water. So um, it's great that there's a child children's book um, that focuses on this particular issue in an age-appropriate way. And then the other one, I think you also recommended this one to me, Becca, was The Girl and the Wolf by Katharina Vermeck. Um, and... While it is not specifically Indigenous, like it doesn't outrightly say that it's an Indigenous story. Um, it's a story about a little girl who's picking berries with her mother in a field and she wanders too far into the woods. And it's about her um, finding her way back home with the help of a large gray wolf. Um, and the illustrations are obviously coded to represent an Indigenous child. And I just thought that those two stories were really beautiful and they're really easy for kids they're accessible it's an accessible story where kids can start learning about indigenous culture also um the author of to shape a dragon's breath moniquel black goose is actually from rhode island that is where the sikonke wampanoag the sikonke wampanoag um tribe is from so rhode island and massachusetts um they're a little widespread so she's not actually canadian um but that's okay because the story i i love fantasy and like fantasy and dragons and like a little bit of indigenous spice and um you know again indigenous history retold through an accessible lens like fantasy is just it's everything it's everything to me so i think i think we've done a really good job of highlighting some really great books uh, that you can start to read if you're interested in learning about Indigenous culture and Indigenous people. Um, and I just, I would ask any of our listeners who maybe have been cautious about stepping into reading more diversely um, to look outside of what's traditionally being presented and pushed forward, you know? So I think it's important for us to read not just books by Black authors, not just looks books uh, by Latine authors. Um, we need to look at our Indigenous authors. I feel like they often get missed when people are talking about diversity on book talk. Um, it's not 
something that's widely discussed. And I feel like I don't want to say erasure because I don't think that it's in, it's intentional. There's just been so much focus on um, supporting black and queer fiction and Latine fiction that I think indigenous books kind of get lost in the mix. They get lost in the BIPOC, you know, black indigenous persons of color, um, kind of widespread diversity call to action when reading. So I'm just really glad that we got to talk about some of the books that we're excited to read books that we've enjoyed and, um, you know, kind of putting a bit of a spotlight on some of the trauma and, and horrible things that have happened to indigenous people and why it's important for us to read their stories as they choose to tell them, you know, we don't want to take someone's autonomy from them. And I think that those are stories that they alone should be able to tell. Um, I just want to end on a note where if you are in Canada and you're not aware, June is Indigenous History Month. Um, you know, you can learn a lot about the Indigenous communities local to where you are. Um, if you visit Land Back, uh, you can find out what kind, what Indigenous land you are currently residing on, who it belongs to, ceded, unceded, or a part of a treaty. Um, where I live in Quebec is the unceded territory of the Nisassanin, uh, Inuit, um, Inu, sorry, and the Wendake. Um, and it is unceded territory. And I just, I forgot to do this at the beginning of the episode, but I would like to just um, offer a land acknowledgement. I know that that can be hollow to a lot of Indigenous folks, um, but I do uh, recognize that the land that I exist on does not belong to me or Canada as a whole belongs to the Indigenous people of Quebec. Um, and coming up is Truth and Reconciliation Day, which in Canada is a new federal holiday uh, to celebrate the actions of the Truth and Reconciliation Council. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with the Truth and Reconciliation Council, you can visit um, rcaanc.cirnac.gc.ca to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and their report on um, the actions that need to be taken by the Canadian government to um, actively reconcile with their actions towards Indigenous people over history. Um, not a lot has been done, and I think it's important that we do more to make those efforts important. And one way you can do that as a citizen of Canada is um, donating to places like the Downey Wenjack Fund. Um, Gordon Downey, um, if you're not familiar who Gordon Downey is, he was the lead singer of a uh, Canadian folk band, folk rock band, uh, The Tragically Hip. He did a lot of work with Indigenous communities and worked with a lot of Indigenous creators. And he uh, founded the Gord Downey Cheney Wenjack Fund as a way to build cultural understanding and creating a path toward reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And this week, um, Reconciliation Week is the 25th of September to the 30th of September. And if you'd like to donate or learn about um, how to be a better ally and to reconcile, you can visit downywenjack.ca, which is D-O-W-N-I-E-W-E-N-J-A-C-K.ca um, to learn more and to donate uh, to support Indigenous reconciliation efforts. Now, I understand... Um, as Becca's mentioned, that in the United States, it's a little trickier because the U.S. is so compartmentalized and broken down into so many different places. 
um, if you're looking at understanding Indigenous issues in the Indigenous community where you are, I would highly recommend that you visit and or look up who your local Indigenous community is, where are they, um, and look at what programs and resources that they are promoting and things that they're trying to do for their community and see for ways that you can volunteer or donate or help. Um, we'll have a whole list of all of these links and resources on our website, drinkinginkpodcast.com on the episode page. So you can go and check that out and uh, do some reading and familiarize yourself with ways that you can be a better ally. I think the important thing to remember being a better ally is not just about saying that I support you and I stand with you, but it's actively going through the process of learning um, and unlearning our inherent biases and actively contributing to making things better. And one way you can do that is through taking the initiative to learn about what's happening in your communities, learn about what's impacted your Indigenous communities, reading stories written by and for Indigenous people, and generally being a good human. So I just want to thank you guys for sitting here while I rant on and off for the last hour. But I I really do appreciate you guys. And I appreciate all of our listeners for being open-minded and, and, and willing to hear what we have to say and listening to us tune in every single week. Um, I know it means a lot to myself um, and Mia and Becca to, to know that we have so many people that support us and support the actions of this podcast. So I think this was a great talk. I think it was good to acknowledge these things because I mean, we wouldn't have the country we have without like the fact that it was, you know, first inhabited by these people. Like, so, I mean, it's the least we can do is like recognizing where we live and like who was originally here and like it, it's such a simple thing but it's the least we can do for them and it's the least we can do to talk about you know what people have ultimately done to them and how we're trying to work to better that because it shouldn't have been done in the first place but we can't exactly go back and change the past but we can change the future we absolutely can want more from the bookish bitches Follow us on TikTok at Drinking Ink Pod Official for updates regarding our newest episodes, releases, and behind the scenes chaos, or send us an email at drinkinginkpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all streaming platforms like Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow our hosts on their personal accounts located in the show notes, along with recommended reading lists and all the books we mentioned in today's episode. Stay thirsty, friends.